Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for joining this uh, webinar held by XAPA.org, Organization Driving uh, Human Rights, Climate, Inclusive Growth Agenda. We're delighted to welcome you all for that, uh, that discussion today. And uh, we are uh, going just to start the conversation, ensuring that a few technical um, uh, points are shared with you all to maximize your time and value taking part in this discussion with us today. So, of course, you can change your name. Uh, be aware that you're automatically muted. That maximizes quality of sound for everyone. We don't use cameras, um, including for our speakers. Myself, I'll introduce myself in a minute. Um, if you want, you can invite other participants. And most importantly, being a socially uh, responsible organization, we minimize energy consumption of those discussions. So they upload it um, in a way that is of low uh, consum energy consumptions. There will be a short poll at the end. Um, that could be activated. Please provide responses. Uh, just three questions. It's, it's, it's helpful for us to maximize value of upcoming webinars. Last um, and not least, uh, you're uh, close to 200 plus participants uh, registered to this uh, webinar. So you can access uh, the list of registered participants um, that we can share after the webinar. And this conversation is recorded, so you can make sure that uh, if you want to um, uh, broadcast or share the content or access the, the presentation that is going to follow during the webinar today, this is going to be accessible open source as part of uh, the open source contents available on uh, xapa.org website um, uh, in uh, just a few days from today. We are in conversation today to explore how to use effective human rights due diligence and streamline compliance efforts. A reason why we are uh, including these webinars are part of a long series of webinars that has been um, driving a lot of discussions with multiple stakeholders for the past three years. It's because overall, we know that there are growing number of, of yourself as part of our audience really scratching your heads. Um, exploring how to be effective um, to combine due diligence on human rights, that is a sensitive and complex topic, and at the same time having to navigate multiple geographies and multiple compliance efforts that are requested increasingly. Therefore, I introduce myself as the moderator of the session today. On behalf of our team at XAPA, I'm Farid Badash. I combined corporate, academia, and geo experience working for more than 20 years on, on human rights and combining conceptual, practical experience on the topic. Um, really, I've been worked uh, globally <laughs> across, across, across the globe, and I'm delighted to lead that conversation on behalf of our large uh, community at XAPA, including our team and affiliate network based across um, every geographies in North, South America, Africa, Europe, and Southeast Asia. Um, we're a mission-driven organization, um, and we've worked a lot with um, financial institutions and large companies and their supply chain on human rights to conduct due diligence, have practical guidance, ensuring that they can mitigate risks on those topics. We also love and we find it extremely important to connect the dots between human rights and environmental agenda as part of our how we, how we work on those issues. Um, our approach um, tried to be as... Um, um, action-oriented as possible, so we approach the concept of due diligence with a lot of agility, meaning that for us, being capable to adapt due diligence to a different context um, is important. Middle East is a context with regulatory local environment that is different from what you can find, for example, in um, Latin American uh, markets. Um, so we try to adapt to that scale. We explore cost-effective uh, approaches, ensuring that scalability of due diligence can be applicable across assets and their management when we work with financial institutions and operations when we work with uh, large companies. And obviously, most important aspect, right or the perspective is something we factor, um, knowing that the topics we are addressing when it comes to human rights are extremely sensitive. So that really calls for being extremely creative, ensuring that uh, exploring concrete risk mitigative measure on human rights, take the lens and the perspective of, 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 of right holders and particularly vulnerable uh, uh, right holders, uh, poor, low educated workers, um, gender when relevant, communities, farmers and others. Um, hence the development that's I think a unique value proposition of how our community operates. We really try to be uh, solution oriented and we deploy risk mitigative solutions, including capacity building programs at large scale with digital solutions financial engineering that support the system and ensure the self-funding of those scalable programs. 
ensuring that supply chains or large operations or financial institutions can deploy risk mitigative measure, walking the talk of due diligence and ensuring compliance uh, with effective impact measurement of how they are uh, genuinely capable to mitigate human rights risk across operations and markets. When it comes to human rights due diligence dates, I will uh, just make a brief uh, introduction to say that uh, we are facing a topic that has gained a lot of momentum. Myself, I've been in the in the in the space for more than twenty years, and I've seen between uh, two thousand two and two thousand twenty two how. Uh, beyond regulatory pressures, uh, for example, financial pressures, and how investors have started to, to explore how to better understand uh, human rights across uh, assets under management uh, has become more uh, important in their agenda through engagement, through commitments, and through, uh, for example, OECD national contact point uh, discussions. Um, there's clearly here today a momentum that we didn't have a couple of years ago. We tried uh, to provide an overview of some of the prominent uh, human rights uh, regulatory initiatives that have come across a variety of markets. Uh, we believe are shaping from financial institutions as much as from large company and buyer perspective, a growing converging agenda, long story short calling for duty of vigilance. Although, as you can see across the multiple uh, initiatives here, what is very interesting is that they are coming uh, with different priority top of mind. So that means that if you really want to conduct a due diligence and actually at the end of the day, the California Human Trafficking Initiative is primarily focused on human trafficking. Or if you look at the Dutch Child Labor Due Diligence Act that is fundamentally calling for effective mapping of potential uh, child labor risks across the, the supply chain and uh, documented risk mitigative measure proving effectiveness of how to mitigate risk of potential occurrence of child labor. You can see that you have two topics that may talk to each other, human trafficking on the one hand, child labor on the other hand, but not necessarily perfectly well. They may not match or they may actually even diverge. Hence the question of having that combination of patchwork of uh, regulatory initiatives, more or less converging, um, supporting a broad human rights agenda, but more or less diverging, calling for documented compliance on topics uh, scopes of business that may vary significantly. Uh, the bottom uh, left corner, you can see that France's duty of vigilance is something that is uh, has a very broad scope. Uh, for example, it's a broad human rights supply chain scope. Whereas, for example, the recent uh, US Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is focused on an issue, on a community, on a geography. Um, and so you as a company or a decision maker, you can navigate between those two um, uh, slightly conflictual um, uh, requirements. Closing, and as part of our conversation today, many of you taking part in the webinar today are just scratching their head to understand one of the uh, latest and newcomer in this space, the Norway Transparency Act. And Eric, taking part of the call today, uh, will uh, share an overview of the Tra Norway Transparency Act to understand actually what is specific or common um, um, with, with this additional or one more <laughs> regulatory uh, initiative. An additional uh, uh, stakeholder uh, that is extremely active, that has been active particularly for the past uh, three, five years has been the European Union uh, ruling on behalf of European markets. And for everyone taking part in the webinar today, uh, this needs to be very, very carefully understood because uh, the EU initiatives in the space of human rights overall address first and foremost, obviously, operations headquartered or located or under regulatory compliance of, of, of countries uh, headquartered within the European, the 26 uh, European countries first, but also, and that's clearly part of the scope, the supply chain and the companies or financial institutions doing business with uh, uh, the European Union, meaning that at the end of the day, there is a kind of iterative um, uh, 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 process that intends to embrace virtually uh, a, a lot of, of business financial institution uh, that can be equated really everywhere, including the US, Southeast Asia. 
Um, so this is really important. And what the European Union is is, is providing, there is a combination of uh, of multiple framework. One that is financial um, framework that is fundamentally um, the Green Deal um, that is through taxonomy and SFRD. Uh, increasingly calling to ensure that financial institutions and investors um, invest more to support green transition. But this needs to be conducted in a way which do no significant harm. So there we go. There we connect the dot between um, uh, a, a political impetus uh, supporting and encouraging a green energy transition um, to ensure that uh, fundamentally uh, European economy uh, becomes more adapted to a climate constraint world on the one end, but this must happen in a way that must proactively embrace uh, the OECD guideline and the uh, UN guiding principles on business and human rights to prove that those investments are made in a way that is respectful uh, from a business perspective on, on human rights. But the actually additional more business specific uh, directives in the way, one uh, that is expected to uh, enter into uh, enforcement starting 2024, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, CS3D, uh, which expands uh, the scope of due diligence and risk mitigative measure beyond a core scope of human rights and needs to be um, in correlation with an environmentally friendly approach. Um, for example, uh, you cannot claim to respect human rights if uh, operations or assets under management are, the, are not respecting a Paris Agreement 1.5 climate uh, trajectory. So that connection is interesting because there's been a lot of debate around it uh, that goes beyond supply chain, uh, knowing that uh, many of the uh, regulatory framework focus on, on supply chain, which by itself is our, as actually already its complexity, but the EU CS3D is calling for a great, a broader scope, including consumer facing and business partners um, activities. Um, and that connects with more specific initiatives, for example, one uh, that builds or then might correlate with uh, the Uyghur, um, uh, the, the US Uyghur uh, uh, initiative, but uh, try to disconnect from the political agenda of the Uyghur movement uh, to connect with a broader statement on forced labor and ensure that anything that might characterize forced labor may not be imported in the EU market. Uh, that's a directive and an additional or other directive underway of enforcement on zero deforestation um, is actually also calling for zero deforestation that has a traceability that is attached to a due diligence on human rights. So long story short, this has its own and complex agenda. Two uh, blog articles uh, related to XAPA website are accessible to understand the EU directive on the one end and navigate the difference with all those um, um, jargonic, technical, um, CSRD, SFRD, NFRD, and other EU um, uh, technical requirements. So briefing purpose, so you can look at those documents to have more information. At the end of the day, what makes a robust due diligence process underway and that might uh, ensure compliance afterward is first and foremost to ensure that given the scope to address the variety of, of, of regulatory initiatives at stake, uh, the best approach is to ensure, and that's actually how we strongly promote and work actively with uh, uh, our, our ecosystem of stakeholders, uh, clients and partners, um, that there are five areas that have to be uh, covered one way or another. The systemic perspective is a good way to ensure that there is an holistic understanding of the human right that can potentially be at stake. Um, that ensure that you connect the dot between modern slavery, child labor, and other uh, regulatory initiatives and understand, first and foremost, the scope of human rights that are potentially at scope once and once for all. Uh, two, uh, and that's always something that is very difficult for many organizations. Action plan must demonstrate reasonable efforts to ensure compliance, yes, but they actually also must demonstrate continuous improvement. We don't claim that everything can be solved, but we must prove through point number two that action plan address uh, issues first and through a capable uh, to demonstrate over time that there is improvement and impact. We don't care with those approaches to know how much money is spent on due diligence, we care about how much impact is generated uh, from those uh, from those efforts. And that's different because sometimes there are ways to be smart and actually spend less with more effectiveness. 
Point number three is on right holder perspective. Again, it's an aspect across those due diligence effort that is very important. And I return this aspect to many of you taking part in the call today. How often you, we are scratching our head from far away from the field or from the worker perspective, uh, saying, I don't think that that's risk my okay. But actually, if we can't prove it, if there is no direct capital taking the perspective of a worker of whatever can frame a vulnerable segment of the uh, of, of the population, uh, low educated segment, low income people, um, gender uh, communities that are uh, uh, marginalized in the territory, whatever might uh, frame a right holder and vulnerable segment into it. Actually, we don't know what we're talking about. So being capable to factor that perspective directly or indirectly, and we need to be creative about how we capture that, that perspective is, is very important. Point number four is about grievance mechanism. It's really anchored in the UN guiding principles. And this is overall something that might look very simple and basic, ensure that people can flag issues. But that topic in terms of how people are aware, feel comfortable to use, um, uh, whatever might be uh, uh, discovered through a grievance mechanism can generate corrective measure, improving the impact on them on point number two. All those aspects need to be closely scrutinized. And this is all due diligence is conducive of more effective mitigative approach on human rights. Last point, uh, transparency. Uh, all those efforts must be uh, disclosed and shared. I think we all know that financial organization making investment, uh, business organizations, no matter uh, where they operate in the world cannot monitor and control everything. It is on the safer side to be transparent about uh, a good understanding of the risks, a good degree of sharing on what is done with what success to engage stakeholders on how to improve instead of just trying to close the door and just basically pretend uh, to manage issues. I think it's not on, on, on the good safer side to operate like that. And this is clearly something that is increasingly, increasingly demanded by all of those regulatory frameworks. So I'm going to close on this initial uh, perspective to make sure that we connect with um, actually the perspective of our great contributors today. Uh, there are a lot of concrete guidance that is accessible open source on our website. These are just sample examples of briefing papers accessible to get um, deeper on many of the methodology or topics that are supported for greater due diligence and, and new understanding of how to embrace the human rights agenda. Um, these top challenges will frame the conversations going forward. How to connect through the five major shock holes, um, local regulatory framework, and let's focus um, on the Norway's uh, Transparency Act for a minute to understand what's specific or common uh, with this initiative. And we currently have some, even some clients in the US asking for how to comply with Norwegian Transparency Act. So it's really top of mind for many decision makers that are taking part in the conversation today. Um, an interesting topic may be to connect the environmental, the business and the human rights considerations, um, how to be cost effective in the approach. And as we are going to talk extensively about ASEAN and Pacific Asian operations, uh, where everyone, every company, every asset owner has stakes, skin in the game, how to connect those conceptual and regulatory compliance with the actual uh, operations, for example, with focus on some Asian markets. So let's look at that briefly. And for our conversation, I will uh, make sure that first and foremost, our close contributor today, Eric, uh, can take part in the conversation. Um, so we can have a, a, an initial um, uh, focus on Eric and the approach, how to approach the Norwegian Transparency Act. Eric, welcome. Thank you very much, Farid. And uh, thank you for inviting me to speak to this audience about uh, the Norwegian Transparency Act that uh, came into effect from this summer. I um, have been working most of my career in telecommunications. Uh, currently, I focus on the construction and building industries in Norway with uh, support in health and safety issues. And uh, the team of consultants I work with, we uh, we uh, have uh, based our business on two pillars, that's health and safety before and after accidents. So in the before accidents, we do internal training, we do risk assessments, 
and uh, one-to-one consulting. And in the uh, after accidents perspective, we do investigations into um, accidents or incidents with uh, large loss potential. So how does this then relate to the Transparency Act? Um, I um, I think this is uh, fascinating. And if you can move me to the next slide, please, Farid. Um, the act came into force from July. There was a fair amount of media focus on this uh, over the summer. But if you look at uh, the um, adaptation rate in uh, in the industry, I think uh, the response is is rather slow. Uh, even though the number of companies in scope is rather large, we talk about roughly nine thousand local companies that are in scope of the requirements. Um, including um, all companies with an annual revenue of more than 7 million euros. So you don't have to be very large in order to be in scope for the Transparency Act. Um, The Act is basing its logics on the OECD guidelines for multinational companies and the recommendations for uh, due diligence. And um, companies are expected to assess uh, not only their processes and operations, but also their uh, supply chains. And that's probably the most important new addition to business behavior in in this country. Because uh, up until now, legislation has been reasonably good when it comes to your operations, uh, including a uh, general application act, meaning that you are required to ensure that collective agreements uh, valid in this country is uh, also applied to uh, workers that um, are contracted to your operations. Now you have been asked to expand this into supply chains and uh, that's where the challenges start but i i think um, we could put this reasonably easy farid to say that if a company follows the sapas five core principles they will would be well on the way to meet the requirements of the transparency act um, it focuses mainly on human rights and uh, labor rights, decent working conditions. And um, up until now, uh, this, the focus of the Act does not include climate change and environmental factors, neither the origin of raw materials. Could you move me to the next slide, please? There you go. Thank you very much. Um, I think for a business that's in the scope of the Transparency Act, uh, it's easy. You you go through a four or five step uh, approach. You assign responsibility to someone in the management team. You make sure that uh, your practices are linked to your management system. You assess current practices and identify risks and uh, how uh, you um, map this with the legal requirements. Um, Make sure to identify partners to cooperate with because uh, the easiest approach is not to do this on your own, but together with uh, other companies in in the same uh, situation. And um, you must also make sure that you allocate the resources to do this because uh, in a medium-sized company, um, you would spend not only human resources, but also financial resources in order to identify the risks and uh, make sure that you have mitigations in, in place. Uh, another requirement of the Transparency Act is to make sure that um, you 
make information available to the public. Uh, and uh, you are also requested to do an annual reporting of your, um, your approach and the steps you take. And the best way to do this to, is to align this with your annual reporting according to the Norwegian Accounting Act. And the deadline for most companies in this country would be June 2023. So with a new act coming into place in the summer and a reporting deadline uh, 11 months into the future, uh, I think that's a fair explanation to why responses in um, the business community have been uh, rather slow. Um, I've been talking to a few companies uh, and uh, we see a range here from companies don't not, not understanding the questions to uh, some very mature companies saying that, yes, we focus on this and this is going to require resources for a long time. And I don't think we can be compliant to these requirements in less than five years. So this is a, a statement from an owner and CEO of a company that states that they are clearly in the lead and want to stay there. So that's the way they see the challenge. Uh, if you compare this to, to um, analysis that have been done locally on the understanding and um, and respect for the OECD guidelines, uh, we have seen that only a small percentage of Norwegian businesses um, fully understand the requirements of OECD guidelines, and um, less than 50% of companies that are in scope for those guidelines um, are actually familiar with, uh, with uh, the guidelines at a high level. So I don't think we can expect radical changes in the near future. Uh, I think uh, there is a milestone uh, towards the summer of 2023, where um, we will see what proportion of companies are actually including the reporting of uh, transparency into their annual reports. Uh, normally combined with the sustainability reporting, which is also required by the law. But um, I think we need a longer time perspective to see changes. And if you look into the uh, construction and building industries uh, in this country, um, I think the status is, uh, I wouldn't say depressing, but uh, the situation could have been a lot better. If you look at this industry, uh, we see that uh, we uh, report more than 10 fatalities each year, comparing to, um, to the oil and gas industry, where the number is zero. So uh, in the construction and building industries, we have a long way to go when it comes to not only uh, labor conditions, but also human rights perspective. There is a large proportion of import labor. And um, when I visit companies, I see that uh, it's not uncommon that uh, import labor still suffers. And that's a situation we should not see here at all. So um, I welcome the Transparency Act, um, but at the same time, it will uh, take years in order to uh, uh, make sure that businesses are compliant to the requirements. But in a way, and I move actually also maybe to your closing um, slide, um, it shows a certain degree of maturity to have decision makers understanding the complexity of what's at stake and saying, you know, we need five years to expect to fulfill uh, what's expected because there are other business decision makers. And I've seen some of those saying, well, there is nothing new is what this document is all about. And at the end of the day, we are actually already compliant, meaning that they really don't understand <laughs> what they're talking about and what's at stake. So that's... Um, but in, <laughs> in two years' time, uh, the EU legislation in this area will be uh, 
updated and that may also affect uh, and require updates in uh, in uh, the Norwegian Transparency Act. So there will be a development here, uh, not only improvement for businesses, but uh, also new requirements uh, from the legislators. Uh, and I think if you if you take a serious approach to this, uh, identify um, risks in your main processes, deal with those, those risks, and then take this to the next level, looking into secondary processes. I, uh, I think that's the best approach. We must uh, understand that the academic approaches to these uh, issues are not always uh, the best approach. Uh, I'm more interested in looking for practical solutions to, to these issues. Thank you. We'll come back with a few questions in a minute. I want to make sure to introduce actually as well uh, Thomas uh, for a perspective changing the angle um, and getting to the ASEAN context. Um, Thomas, thank you for joining us fairly late. Thank um, you very much. Singapore time. Oh, it's okay. It's only 11.30 in the night, so... <laughs> So for Just everyone in the audience, we'll make sure to close on time. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thank so, you. well, please introduce yourself briefly and uh, initiative and, um, and let's talk a bit about how to anchor human rights in the ASEAN context. Uh, thank you, Farid, and uh, good afternoon and um, good evening and good morning to all of you uh, from all the other parts of the world. Uh, I'll start off by just uh, introducing a little bit of the ASEAN CSR network, and I think it's important to give you a context of Southeast Asia uh, before I plunge into the discussion on human rights in the region. Uh, firstly, my organization is the ASEAN CSR Network. We are an ASEAN entity. We were formed, uh, we established on the 8th of December 2010 uh, with the objective to promote responsible business conduct in ASEAN. So we are supposed to uh, help work with businesses to promote sustainable social economic development. Uh, within, so we are an entity within ASEAN constitution, uh, but we are, uh, we also, ASEAN has also got a business advisory council. We are with them as well. And uh, so that's us trying to do uh, a responsible business. But I also want to tell you a little bit of the association of Southeast Asian nations. Uh, there are differences and similarities between EU and ASEAN. Uh, both are regional organizations. Uh, while the EU is a community, the, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is an association. We don't have legislation that covers the whole region. And this whole region is very diverse. Uh, we have, uh, in terms of geography, we have Indonesia, uh, about well, 1.9 million square kilometers covering three time zones to Singapore, which is about 200 and 720 square kilometers at low tide. And with population about 270 million in Indonesia to 450,000 in, in Brunei. So we have huge diversity as well as if you look at per capita income, uh, Singapore has nearly 60,000 uh, dollar, US dollars per capita per year, or Brunei with 26,000. But at the, at the extreme, you've got uh, Myanmar, which is only 1,200, uh, 1, or Laos with 1,300. So I'm just saying that the deviation diversity is so great. Uh, but yet, uh, politically, they are also very different. We have one, we have military governments, one party states. Uh, we have uh, absolute monarchs, uh, we have quasi-democracies, uh, you name it, we have it. Uh, so within <laughs> this whole thing, yet, uh, when there have been fantastic uh, economic and, uh, and social development. For the last 50 years, there has been peace and progress. But before that, there used to be wars and conflicts between the 10 countries. Uh, for the last many years, there's peace. And this has resulted in the doubling of GDP over the last decade, 
living standards has gone up. You've talked about the, the size of the economy. The association is a country. We are the third largest in Asia and the sixth largest in the world. But how did we achieve this? We, all this was achieved with a mindset called growth at all costs. So just get the profits up, get the things up. Whatever. So there is always a spillover effect. And part of it, if you look at our region, we have huge problems with inequalities, with corruption, uh, social problems like forced labor, land grabs, uh, environmental degradation, deforestations, uh, the loss of rights, the rights of voice is gone. Uh, might is right. And uh, like somebody says, the, the, the strong do what they want and the weak suffer they must. Uh, so we, we have. But yet, within ASEAN, if you read the ASEAN uh, forward of the ASEAN community blueprint and other vision, they will say we resolve to realize they call rule-based, people-oriented, people-centered ASEAN community, where our people enjoy human rights, fundamental freedoms, high quality of life, benefits of community building, reinforcing our sense of togetherness and other things. So you find that words are very strong and they have made some progress. For example, uh, ASEAN has two human rights organizations. Uh, one is the ASEAN Intergovernment Commission on Human Rights. The other one is the ASEAN Com Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Women and Children. So then uh, my own organization was promoted to form, to promote responsible business in ASEAN. We have a human rights declaration, 2011, which uh, is uh, internationally acceptable standards, except in some places they have a comma and a provision clause that takes as national situation uh, allows. So you have an escape clause on it. So uh, within uh, the, the next thing I also want to say is, is that uh, within ASEAN, uh, the, uh, going forward, uh, I told you we have this uh, <coughs> position. But if you look at uh, my own organization, we did together with the ASEAN Business, ASEAN Intergovernment Commission on Human Rights, we did a baseline study on the situation of <laughs> CSR and human rights because many of our countries, even if you put human rights first, it's very hard. So, responsible business and human rights, business and human rights. And uh, we found that all the countries had good declaration, good things, but implementation was a problem. In 2016, both the ASEAN Development Commission of Human Rights and us, we came out with a regional strategy to implement uh, business and human rights in the region. Uh, it has not been rejected because ASEAN works on the policy of consensus. Uh, everybody agree, or at least minimally, nobody says no. Uh, so nobody has said no. Uh, but due to a lot of factors, it is not. Uh, so we were we did annual conferences, uh, but things on that is not moving. Uh, on paper, somebody else is doing it, but not so much. It's not on the ASEAN Development Commission of Human Rights agenda. It's not. There are some countries that are stressed working on national action plans. And in fact, in 2019, we did a study on business and human rights in ASEAN, and the conclusion was that the standards are substantively short of the benchmark set by UNGPs. So if you look at all, just looking at uh, disclosure as well. But then if you look at disclosure for sustainability reports, uh, the least reported issues are labor standards, labor relations, human rights, product stewardship, or climate change impacts. So the most people report on is economic performance, economic returns, how much profits, what they're doing. So you can find that what are we doing, what are the achievements. So uh, basically, uh, what is the approach we're doing? Uh, there are a lot of people coming in and working on it, uh, and a lot of money and effort is spent. But really on the ground, we found in businesses the awareness is not there. It's not different. And secondly, is even the awareness is that people hope it will never be implemented because many of us in Asia, 
has been under colonial powers. They, uh, and many of our ex-colonial masters, uh, they're profit-driven. So if it is for political purposes or for, for to make most money, the cost, they think they'll get away with it. And a lot of businesses. So the question of the implementation, the willpower, the political, so there's lack of awareness and there's also a lack of capacity uh, to do it and uh, drivers. And uh, we also get mixed signals. If you go and talk to the companies, you find they'll tell you that one part of a buyer from Europe will talk about sustainability, uh, procurement. Then the procurement guy will just come and talk about cost. So the incentives to do this is uh, not very strong. So what we have done is we have worked with the ASEAN Business Advisory Council because before that we used to work with Global Compact Matters, Chambers of Commerce, uh, and and things, there was a mixed result. So now we're working with them, trying to form a working group to push. We hope basically to raise awareness, to tell them, look here, there are pressures for uh, legislation that's coming, uh, which people will say, if I can't sell to Europe, I'll sell to China or India. Uh, I mean, you hear that very often. And also build up local networks to raise awareness, build capacity, so we are working on a principle, not just on human rights, that you need to create the whole environment on responsible business conduct. Responsible business conduct is a cross-cutting thing, which has people, which has got labor standards, which has got uh, working also on things for the environment. The idea of, uh, we just did a study on uh, sustainable consumption and production and see how we can work on resource efficiency, uh, those are the things that are more. So there's also, in, in Southeast Asia, you find there's a lot of talk on sustainability. There's a lot of discussion on ESG, but mostly E, not so much on S or G. So where are we going from here? We are, uh, I told you, we, we are working with the, the Asset Business Advisory Council together to get companies to join up to subscribe to a code. We developed this code called the, uh, the code with the ASEAN, uh, it's a code for responsible, inclusive business. And we talk about businesses working on principles, the principles of accountability, transparency, ethical behavior, respect for stakeholder interest, respect for rule of law, respect for international norms of behavior, and to treat people with respect, dignity, and fairness. We also cover subject areas, it's on governance, environment, labor, uh, we human rights, consumer protection, community engagement and development. This is one of the few codes for responsible, which is accepted across the board in all the 10 countries. Uh, so we have got some standard to work with. So we are creating an organization called the ASEAN Responsible Inclusive Business Alliance to push this code and to work on it. So when I talk about all the efforts is to build up these networks. If uh, I think uh, it'd be great if European companies or your companies with your supply chain in Southeast Asia uh, work with us, join us, and help to help these companies, your own supply chain, but work to arrive at this. And whether we should have standards, what sort of standards we do, should we have ISO standards, other standards, and uh, we can talk about really uplifting things. Moving away the ignorance and also moving away the uh, building capacity. So raising awareness, building capacity, and uh, getting everybody to mainstream it. And that will also require continuous effort, mindset change. And I think I'm quite glad to know that we are not the only ones. That there are also problems in developed world as well. But in Southeast Asia, we're really working on this. I will stop now. No, that's very interesting, and I want to make sure to convene Eric as well, because I as something in common and a question coming my way uh, to start having a, a joint discussion all together is uh, this question of ignorance and capacity. Eric, you mentioned that you were surprised in a way to see the difference in uh, performance between, for example, the oil industry and the construction industry. So at the end of the day, what's missing in terms of capacity? What, what, what could be effective 
to ensure alignment in what's expected and, and improvement of capacity uh, for decision makers or those responsible for improving quickly um, working conditions, safety, performance, for example, of imported labor um, uh, workers. But the very same question applies to you, Thomas, because you mentioned across your presentation insufficient capacity, ignorance, and same. I mean, despite the variety or the diversity of markets and, and people and environments at stake, but maybe the, the top one, two, three, I don't know, um, uh, concrete guidance or suggestion you can share with, with our audience in terms of fast um, improvement of, of, of access to capacity or, 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 or uh, informed uh, opinion about what's at stake and, and, and good solution, what's not acceptable. So maybe Eric, you want to go first in terms of being effective to quickly bring up to speed decision maker. We need to know what's expected from them. <laughs> well, <later>. human <laughs> it's it's a very good uh, question, Farid, and uh, I don't think there is a simple answer. But if you compare the oil and gas industry to the land based construction and building industries, um, I believe that uh, the drive for improvement must come from inside and um, I don't think uh, the legislators can do more than they have done from the legislative side but uh, maybe from the monitoring and inspection side there is potential for improvement but at the end of the day the drive for improvement must come from the inside and I'd like to make one easy comparison um, and that's related to the number of road traffic uh, fatalities annually. Uh, many countries have a zero vision for uh, road fatalities but uh, when you look into the real statistics uh, uh, it's more or less impossible to control and improve if you don't make sure that uh, the drivers and uh, the people who move on the roads uh, make uh, changes to their attitudes and to their behaviors. And that's where the solution lies. Uh, we must change behaviors. If I could add in, uh, Farid. You're very welcome. Uh, if you go and ask the average company in Southeast Asia, why you don't do that? They will tell you the government didn't tell me to do it. Uh, I don't know what to do. I have no time. I have no money. I mean, that sort of uh, uh, answer. So if you ask me what's the legislation, what is their response? I think first is rules, legislation. The government has some way to say, this is what I need. This is what I expect of you. And legislation alone doesn't work. It has to be enforced. In our part of the world and many other parts in the world, a lot of rules are there, a lot of laws are there, but it's never enforced because of corruption and a whole lot of other things. And if you look at the other point that I think is also education and capacity, uh, even in my country, you look at the oil and gas and the construction industry, the construction industry has a lot of fatalities. Oil and gas is much more safer. It's, and it was never that. The oil and gas was also about 30, 40 years ago, had a lot of accidents. But governments passed legislation, required safety committees, safety management systems, safety. But the construction industry here has high fatality. It's mostly migrant workers. There's also a feeling that uh, in many parts of our Southeast Asia, migrant workers are not treated as equally or as good as. Uh, as uh, as regular as their citizens, because migrants don't vote. So the issues of forced labor. And the other point is, this, if you get this oil and gas, it's better uh, safety standards, because they're unionized. The workers have a voice. And many of the other places with migrant workers and, and with casual workers and uh, 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 non-formal workers, uh, I think without unions, they also make. So maybe it's governments, but also internally, where workers has a voice, has the rights to be. So I, uh, if I could add another point, if you look at many of these stories about ESGs, I understand. 
they will talk about the environment, they talk about social, the social is basically about diversity, about health, safety, but diversity is about gender, even LBGT rights, but my part of the world is a bit more sensitive, but people don't talk very much about rights, the right to organize, the right to collective bargaining, uh, these things. So these are some of the issues that we face as well. Another question then is how to improve. Um, I mean, what would be, um, and that's another question coming our way. Um, what could be um, an effective, um, try to translate the, the, the discussion because it's a very long text, sorry. Um, how to improve dialogue between private sector and governments to support conducive uh, framework. When you say, for example, Thomas, uh, I don't do anything because my government is not asking me to do it, to do it, or to work on it. Uh, so that's clearly, I think, addressing that uh, that comment you made. Um, but Eric, also, I think you say uh, a bit earlier that, uh, for example, even in Norway, there are ahead uh, 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 of the Transparency Act, good norms uh, in Norway. So at the end of the day, there are good norms, but the Transparency Act is in asking new questions uh, and companies say, well, fine, we can work on it, but that will take time. So at the end of the day, if I try to combine the two perspectives here, the question I have for both of you is, is what's missing in the public-private discussion um, to accelerate alignment um, uh, for effective uh, action. More union, Thomas? <laughs> I, I would uh, basically say that let's put the context of this dialogue. In many of the developing countries, they want to improve the lives of people by having investments. Uh, so they'll create jobs, they'll create incomes, they'll create wealth. So in order to attract these investments to these countries, the company, the governments give these companies special rights, less taxation, maybe even uh, waivers on provisions of their environmental or social rights, even the right to unionize, make it very difficult. So the dialogue between government and business uh, in many countries is not what the country needs, but what businesses need to stay on in the country. So can so the pressure must, and I think the EU legislations, et cetera, makes it effective because for businesses to stay on, they have to do due diligence on human rights, uh, environmental uh, impact of their business, et cetera. So the dialogue hopefully will be that. Uh, but a lot of governments in our, our own dialogue with a lot of governments, uh, they don't know what is happening, and uh, uh, and and they depend on business and other people. And you also see in my part of the world, civil society is quite suppressed, so you don't get. Anything. And it's also made worse because there are huge international NGOs that comes in with huge funds, uh, but I'm not sure it has built local capacity because eventually you have to. You're going to have real movement, real changes to build capacity of local people, local uh, enterprises, and uh, local even civil society organizations uh, to speak up and to express their I think that that's one point that can be more. I, I think, Thomas, you also at a point here mentioned the role of the unions. And uh, I'm convinced that uh, the unions will have to um, take a stronger role in the changes. But uh, how can you expect that if you are in a country where unions are not recognized or not completely allowed? So that's, that's another, another challenge here. Uh, and uh, hope I'm not... Uh, derailing the discussion but i also like to to ask for the voice of the consumer um, we haven't mentioned that in today's discussions we have uh, pointed at lawmakers and uh, and uh, business leaders but at the end of the day the voice of the consumer is also important here when they start demanding um, 
more transparency, better practices, and uh, fair wages through the the whole chain of uh, supplies. That will also have some effect and uh, make sure that changes happen. What do you think, Thomas? I agree with you completely. Last week, I was attending an EU switch issue of sustainable consumption and production. We need informed consumers. A lot of time, consumers are not well informed. And on, so even in my part of the world, products labeling is not there. So if you have human rights due diligence, and one of the oldest international standards is the ILO's fundamental principles and rights of where all companies are expected to to comply with the core conventions of the ILO and countries are are checked on it, even if they don't rectify the convention. So it technically means all MNCs, regardless of where they operate, they have to report on it. I'm not sure how many uh, countries, how many uh, companies actually report on it or even adhere to core conventions. Similarly, and consumer protection, I completely agree with you. And uh, we have put in, in our core conventions uh, standard on the importance of consumer rights and consumer protection. Uh, I'm on the same page. Uh, but the consumers can only be effective if they are informed. And we need to raise their, because today a lot of consumers go for the cheapest product, not necessarily for the most responsible, most uh, environmentally friendly products. This uh, is a very interesting and important point because there are many ways to build the business case uh, for greater human rights um, enforcement. Uh, we're getting to the end of the hour, so I want to flag to people uh, taking part in the call to please respond to the three questions. There is a feedback survey that is uh, ongoing right now. Your responses are very helpful. Um, but getting back to the, the point you made, uh, both of you, uh, Eric and Thomas, on the consumer perspective, um, maybe we could close the conversation saying that for a business case, no matter what uh, companies, government think about human rights, the more there is market demand uh, for better social environmental performance ingrained in products, sort of in production, um, the more at the end of the day, it's not about having an ethical or uh, political discussion, but <laughs> fundamentally addressing compliance and what's expected from, uh, from the market. So it's kind of a way to kind of cut or uh, avoid uh, uh, long discussions to get to concrete, um, uh, concrete action. Um, I will just close the conversation with a closing word uh, from each of you, Thomas and Eric. And just before you share a closing word, and I would have just a closing question. Um, one takeaway from our conversation today, I would just walk through uh, two complimentary slides closing the discussion. People in the call are welcome to join a, a collaborative initiative on forced labor underway, where we are producing technical guidance with focus on electrical vehicle and uh, solar panel. Uh, to design and engage investors, buyers, and suppliers on technical requirements, mitigating forced labor risks across supply chain, no matter the geography. Um, if you want to know more, you just need to use contact.sapa.org uh, to inquire for more information. And if you want to stay appraised of our uh, discussion and uh, even get to know when the conversation, the content will be uploaded, uh, just join for thousand plus decision makers across the globe registering to our newsletter and uh, getting a chance every month to get an update on what's going on with our community. As we are closing the webinar right on time, I will just close uh, with a um, final uh, comment from Eric, then Thomas, on one takeaway from the conversation today, and we close the webinar today from there. Eric, one takeaway from our conversation today. Yeah, I think uh, the most important takeaway is uh, all the open source material available through your web pages. I think that will uh, put uh, companies in a position to solve these challenges uh, with internal resources rather than uh, paying large sums of money to uh, legal experts or consulting firms in order to 
<laughs> to help them out of the situation. I'm not uh, trying to uh, damage your business model, Farid, but not uh, at all. I I think uh, the best way to deal with the challenges is to try to uh, attack them with your own internal resources. Thomas, closing remark. I, I agree with uh, uh, Rick. I just want to add that I think the challenge is quite great. I think we need to pull together, work together to do resources. Uh, sadly, in my part of the world, a lot of people compete among ourselves because for various reasons. But I think if we can get people to work together and uh, the market is so big for everyone, there's enough uh, for it. If we can raise awareness and then uh, the uh, consultants or, uh, and even civil society can go in and help people. There is a lot of need in it. So on that basis, we, but we still have to be very clear and be very firm on the expectations of what is really we need or from uh, business on and human rights. What does UNG, UNGPs mean and living up to that? That I think would be non-negotiable. But the steps, the ways, we just get people to move on that. Thank you very much for those uh, wise closing comments. We're right on time. Uh, it's just over midnight for you, Thomas. So we close the it's webinar okay. now. Thank you. Um, questions still are still coming. Uh, there is an email where people can address additional uh, questions and comments. We'll be delighted to, to share with uh, contributors. Thank you very much, everyone. I will close uh, the discussion now, and uh, we'll, uh, we keep being connected all together on those fascinating topics. Thank you. Thank Best. you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.